We're back with Dr. McClay. Are you still on the no, air with us? Don't call him doctor. Call him Professor I, McClay. Pr- professor? He doesn't want to be on an airplane. You can call and, me, you know, any, yo, you know, whatever you want. No, okay, Bill. <laughs> oh, you're, you know, he, this guy is talking about bourgeois values. There's Ed being bourgeois all of a sudden. Please. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, bourgeois is not bad. Bourgeois well, remember, he went to the University of Chicago. He thinks the world revolves around it. And I remind oh, him I, that a, yeah, Barack Obama taught there. University. No, don't say that here. You can't say that here on this show, because is <laughs> you know we can't get him out of the door. The door here is a exceptionally small door, and yeah. you know he brings everybody from the University of Chicago has already spoken here. So please don't say that, because then it's okay. like it makes right. the concrete like quicksand. Jeez. Okay. Okay. Right. So okay. you had an experience on a radio interview, and there's something about. Uh, uh, the interview going south or north because of bourgeois values? That's what I understand. Oh, I I don't think it went south. I think it was, uh, you know, I haven't had a chance to go back and listen to it again. I I think it's there online somewhere, like three things online. But, um, uh, no, I think it was, it was, uh, it was, it was was something here in my university, which is the University of Oklahoma, uh, and uh, uh, where we, discussed chapters out of a, a book by a guy named Edward Luce, who uh, was sort of, what's wrong with the world, and, uh, and it was a, not a very good book, but uh, it was one that our, our president, the president of the university, thought was good and whatever it should discuss, and I, I, uh, I was struck by the fact that this author paid a lot of attention to sort of economic factors and government programs to deal with family breakdown and and dysfunction and and that kind of thing and didn't pay any attention to to values to what kinds of uh, of, of values do we as a society um, extol uh, what kinds of values do we inculcate in, in young people and that um, you know I and I use the term bourgeois values which I got from there there, there are other scholars who use it, but to just talk about things that, uh, bourgeois virtues, actually. Yes. Uh, Deidre McCloskey. Uh, like, hard, like hard work. Uh, yeah, not, this is not, you know, brain science. This is not rocket science. I mean, but it's, it seems like the notion that you, you uh, that if, you, if you, you need to work to get ahead and that, you, that, that psychological well-being partly comes from the satisfaction you have in knowing that you have worked for the things that you have and uh, that you, you have that ability to work for things and to make things happen, that you can, you can be self-starting, that you can take uh, initiatives, that um, you can, and you live in a society in which it's possible to create businesses and start things and uh, um, be, be, a, be a free agent in a sense. And uh, instead of waiting around for government or somebody else to do things for you, you, you can you can make them happen for yourself. And uh, that, that's part of what I re- remember this guy. You know, it's just, it, 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 these, these problems are not always amenable to being solved by, by governments. Yes, by the, un- government the infamous politics. unanswerable grievance. It's so sad yeah. to watch that people really think the government's going to solve an unanswerable grievance. It's just unbelievable. There are some people, unfortunately, 
that are born with uh, deficiencies, and those people have to uh, struggle even harder. I had a friend of mine who had to take the bar exam five or six times, and guess what? He understood that he had a deficiency, and therefore he knew he was going to be taking it more than once, and he did. And today he's a lawyer, and he's probably a better lawyer than most because he really earned it. Yep. Yeah, and Ed goes, yeah, I, I, you know, Ed looks at me with his face like, I passed it the first time with flying colors, and, you know, I don't have that problem. <laughs> well, well, Ed, I will pass by that. But I, no, I, I agree. I think that, that um, uh, p- people who have never had to struggle, um, they haven't never really been tested. They, they, they don't know really what they're made of. Uh, they don't know what, uh, you know, they, they also don't know what... what what they might be capable of because they've never been put to the test. And this is one thing that I, you know, the whole culture of higher education and education in general, this sort of T-ball culture where everybody's a winner and, and everybody gets a prize just for showing up and, and this sort of thing. This is really uh, very, very destructive. And it, it, the thing is that kids are not fools. They know when the, the awards they're getting, the, the recognition they're getting is meaningless. Especially if, if third place uh, is getting a trophy. <laughs> yeah, so so it, 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 it's 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 really important to kind of keep that element of of struggle and difficulty, um, and and the sense that your struggles and and, and difficulties are are, uh, are are not necessarily things that won't be rewarded, but but that you have you have to endure them to get to something that's really worth something. Uh, and uh, you know, I I think that there's there's a it, a lot of the culture of complaint that you're talking about, the unanswerable grievance, yeah, stems from people who have, and unfortunately, it's often people who are members of groups that that have that have a legitimate gripe about being discriminated against in the past, but they don't really have much of a gripe now. Uh, well, I've been discriminated against, and I don't have a single gripe. I could care less. Yeah, you discriminate against me? Well, I'm going to punch you in the face. Show, or, you, show them. It's, it's, well, it's plain and simple. You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm, I'm talking about employment. I'm talking about bidding. I'm talking about just uh, being slighted. Uh, in every aspect of my life growing up, I felt I was discriminated against, and I don't have a single complaint. I could care less. Show it, them. It didn't bother me one bit. In fact, it was. I kind of thought it was cool. Living well is the best revenge. Yeah. Living well is the best revenge. That, that, that is a, a great statement. And I think, I, that, quite frankly, most African Americans could, could give a hoot either. Now, I'm, not, I'm, I'm separating uh, the blacks that I know from you know, their slave ancestors. I'm sure that they thought differently because it was actually life and death in many cases. But the average black person that I've been told by my average black friends, they've all told me, it's competitive. They understand that it's on the outside of their bodies, their skin color. They realize there's no dodging it or, or, or hiding it or anything like that. But they're not. They weren't so angry about it as we are. Us white people sell to to the mass audience. So they don't looking. They're not looking for reparations. Your no, friends? absolutely okay. not. Most black people just want to get get on with it. And quite frankly, they understand that there is this issue, and this issue is completely. Uh, uh, kind of uh it's like a fantasia it's not really there but it's there it's kind of depends who you ask but most most blacks just want to uh they want to compete they want to have a life uh quite frankly they they discriminate as well don't think that they're so kind to new people in the neighborhood or 
white people in general, they have their own discriminatory <laughs> rules as well. I remember, I'll give you the perfect example. I was a commercial uh, real estate agent, and I took a listing in the, in the deep neighborhood, in the hood. And I was going to bring an employer that was going to hire a lot of people in the neighborhood. It was a healthcare employer. And uh, they were looking at the space. It was in a, an, an upcoming area of the hood called Alibaba. And sure enough, I, uh, the first visit I came, I saw a ding on my car. Uh, second time I came to show the property, I paid someone 20 bucks so there wouldn't be a ding in my car. The third time I came, I found a, my car completely scratched from corner to corner. Well, <laughs> the tenant saw that as well. And guess what? They didn't move in the neighborhood. Right. So you're going to tell me that isn't discriminatory? Of course it was. They've sabotaged their whole neighborhood of a, of a legitimate employer that could employ some people. Right. And they just didn't like that this Cubano kid, uh, by the way, I, I was driving a green, long green Lincoln. So <laughs> so it was there was more to scratch. But that's discriminatory. You know, it's, it is what it is. You know, big deal. I didn't complain about it. I didn't even repaint my car. I just got another car <laughs> later. But, hey, the... T- uh, I would say that was, you know, an act of vandalism. It's, 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 it's illegal. It's your, yeah. Well, I kind of thought, I, I thought it was contract law. I paid the guy 20 bucks to take care of my car. Why, did, why didn't he? Didn't, oh, well, yeah, he, did, yeah, he didn't do a good job. <laughs> he didn't do a good job. <laughs> so what can I say? You know, that's yeah. the issue. There's nothing I can, you know. I think, I think you know, that, that we, we, we need, to get back to the bourgeois virtue, we need a, 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 a culture that, that not only provides work, but that extols work, that sees work as one of the ways that people fulfill themselves and, uh, and, and fulfill their human nature, fulfill their human dignity. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that, that's, that's always been... Uh, a part of the American way, and I think that that's something else that is uh, you know the rising interest in socialism among young people, which I think is is uh, is probably overpolled, but I think there's truth to it. You know, I'm around young people all the time, and I I do see a, a kind of soft softness, and it's a soft headedness about socialism. I mean, they think socialism is lots of goodies and and uh, not having to worry about uh, students loan debts and, and that sort of thing. But um, Well, there we go again. The minute you, you, you bring, bring up the subject of what uh, of, of who's going to pay for it and how it's going to be paid for, then, then all of a sudden uh, they, 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 they're, they're, they're thinking changes. And so I think it's, it's just a matter of not having really thought things through very well. But, but it, is, it is part of a, of a whole kind of um, uh, uh, atmosphere of the culture that is that takes certain things for granted. Now, maybe it's a function of wealth. One of you said something about that a while back, that, that uh, we are, we're so wealthy we, we take things for granted. But, um, you know, people who have immigrants, uh, this is another way that immigrants can be a great force for good in a country that is, you know, when you come from another country, uh, yeah, you push. good shape you're in financially, you're, you're taking a big risk. You're uh, dislocating your lives sure. uh, with uncertain results. Um, it's a big, it's a big gamble, and uh, um, it, it is. Uh, it, it, it takes guts. It takes uh, courage uh, to do that, uh, and, and and it is. It, it's entering into a life, a way of life that's full of risk, and yet you do it. And um, gratifyingly, for an awful lot of people who come here, they they end up. 
buying into American values and and succeeding. Okay, and okay, Bill, but let me let me temper your. Let me temper your enthusiasm for a minute. Since 2004, starting with the W administration, uh, in Mexico, in Spanish, they have advertised that if you come to America, even if you're an illegal immigrant, you can get food stamps. Oh, yeah. No, no. That doesn't... uh, I'm well aware of that. Yeah, and that's a problem. I think there's a... You know, one of the things that... ought to be seen, seen as an iron law is that you cannot have a welfare state and high levels of immigration, even legal immigration, um, at the same time. The, you know, the two things are contradictory. There's, yep. a, there's a reason that the Finns have um, a highly developed welfare state but very little immigration, uh, unlike the Swedes, by the way, who have really made a mess of things. Yep. But, uh, uh, they recognize that you can't have both. You know, you can't have uh, uh, a society in which the, the, the state, the collectivity, is making these enormous demands on people in terms of the tax burden and uh, and, and the percentage of their disposable income that goes to the general the general good, uh, and and have a bunch of uh, foreigners traipsing in. Uh, continuously and uh, uh, the, the two things just can't go together well but so, but think, you got to realize only last the, the current the current uh, crop of geniuses in Washington and elsewhere don't seem to, to recognize it's not just in Washington last Thursday night here in Miami all Democrat uh, candidates for president raised their hand when they no, were except, said, except get... for the senator from uh, Colorado Every, yeah no, no, even Hickenlooper, Hickenlooper and No, that's and the governor of Colorado, the senator. He did, Okay, well, they all raised their hands and said they would uh, provide free medical insurance for illegal immigrants. Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, the same medical insurance that they fined you and me for in Obamacare for right. not signing up to. And the to. veterans <laughs> are being denied and they're committing suicide. Right. Uh, no, it, it, it's it politically, it's profoundly irresponsible. It's madness. Yeah, but it'll buy the vote, and it'll it'll and make well, the third vote. Well, whose vote are they going to buy? Are they really going to buy whose vote? Who's going to pay for that? Well, whoever starts receiving it will vote for that same person in, yep. for as long as they're reelected. And the Democratic Party has thrived on this. It was invented by the uh, Tenemy Square, the Tenemy Hall, sorry, yep. in New York. Can I ask all of you a question? Because sure. I think, you know, the, the conversation has uh, been heavily directed towards you know current affairs which is 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 fine but you know, I, I i'm a historian and i and i i kind of am wondering what what uh do you feel and i'm and i'll try to see if i have actually done this in my book but what do you feel at a time like this we need from a historian of the american past what what do you think that we we need that we haven't been getting I think what well, no, no, I, I no, think I, yeah I, I think we need no, what you did. I want him to ask you the question again because it's not clear from a historical standpoint. What do you think that are you asking us? What I think is deficient in how historians explain the past. That's what I understood. Well, yeah, well, yeah but what what, what you know, we've been talking about contemporary issues like what what the Democratic candidate did the other night in the debates, the so-called debates, uh, um, and you know I. My opinion on that is no worth no more than anybody else's. 
what I what I do have some useful thoughts about is, is the past. But but what I want to hear from you, and I'm not. This is not by way of challenging. I'm really trying to get some insight from you. But what what do you think is deficient in our understanding of the past that historians have failed to supply? Well, okay, I'll, I'll okay. Like the madness. I agree that what the Democratic Party is indulging in is madness. Um, and, uh, you know, whether there's some way in which we can find historical analogies to it, to what they're doing, you know, I, I have trouble thinking of one. But uh, that, that's really my question. Is it, is it, I want to okay, Ed, you go first. Okay, so... Ed, Ed will go first because he has more knowledge of the past. No, no, but see, for example, the question of make America great again, the question then is, has America ever been great and I think that's one of the things that your book does look at. I mean, your book is very even-handed. It's not like a rah-rah America. I mean, you, you point out the warts. But I think a, a good reading of your book shows America is a unique project and has had a lot of great achievements, like, for, you know, from, from Gettysburg to Omaha Beach to the Berlin Airlift to the landing on the moon to the... Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Berlin Wall. So just your book answers all those things in a way that there was, as you said, there was no organized story telling that America has been great. America has been a failure in some cases. We had slavery, but that was not unique to America. That was part of everywhere. We had segregation for 100 years. We've had a welfare state that's been trapping and undermining families since 1965. But to the, the importance is people, first of all, didn't even know the story. And second, they were being told only the bad parts by people who were attacking America. So your book really answers that and brings us up to date. And it's really essential. Now it's my yeah, turn. Okay, yeah, you go. Your turn. Okay, my turn is something that I learned just recently. Uh, I have this fixation about the whole concept of the textbook itself. So the, uh, the this conversation is very uh, um, eye-opening for me personally because I'm a person that uh, school did not appeal to me whatsoever. And believe me, I carry a, a very heavy cross having not achieved academically what I desired because I wanted to be a veterinarian instead of a radio host. Being That being said, this, something we learned just recently, uh, we had a guest who had, it was an historian of the great capitalist story of how companies rose, expanded. Right, business history. Uh, business history. And that's the most compelling story for American capitalism is to talk about capitalism and the risk people took to create the companies that we yeah. We benefit from, and I don't see, other than classic books about industrialists, I don't see, I see that missing in school. If we would have inspired children very young to tell the story of how Coca-Cola came, became a hangover medicine into the great American soda, the story of Hershey and him not having children and how he left the greatest orphanage uh, in the history of mankind in the Hershey's Foundation, these stories are very compelling stories that are tangible and I, somehow they should be scripted in the, the general story of history of wars, battles, you know, great moments in history. The capitalist story is the one that I learned re very recently w with a gentleman who had, how many books did he have? Uh, no, this is a friend of mine, Gary Hoover. He Hoover. lives in Flatonia, Texas. He has 56,000 books, <laughs> and he is the uh, the founder of the AmericanBusinessHistory.com. Uh, so there, that was very... Uh, that blew me away. Yeah, that, that, that was really... Yeah. 
I'm a I'm really I'm a person who's uh, uh, very uh, curious. I've always been very curious. Thank God. It wasn't enough to get me A's in school, but it, it really allowed me to self teach myself a lot of things, and it allowed to create a lot of vision. That's great. Yeah. That's great. I, I think that, that that kind of thing is worth a lot more than success in school. And I say this as somebody who teaches. Uh, but, yeah, look, I, I, I will say this, okay, uh, about my book. I give a lot of attention to uh, to American business, to capitalism, to the way in which, um, you know, that, that, that from the very beginning, I mean, we were talking about Spanish, uh, Spanish Hispanic heritage and all of that, but, um, you know, it's a, it, it, it's a crucial, crucial element in our history that, uh, you know, the Spanish Armada lost because, and, and the and British and British North America became British uh, rather than Spanish, which could easily have happened. Spain was the dominant uh, colonial power up until that time. Is that my segue? No, no. no. <laughs> No, no, we're, we're, we're both glad that England uh, colonized North America because English, Anglo-American political culture is superior to Spanish or Portuguese political culture. Because of the Magna Carta. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the, a Magna Carta-based... Now... Uh, However, uh, uh, we do want to... Uh, Manny does have the story about the Battle of Chesapeake Bay and about how uh, Admiral DeGrasse's ships were loaded down with Spanish silver for George Washington. Yes, yeah, that's right. The Cu- yeah, the Cuban Treasury opened that was a its Cuban coffer- contribution to the to, American Revolution. Yeah, funded the Battle of Yorktown, and a year before the Battle of Yorktown, the Cuban Treasury, which of course was colonial Spain. Uh, uh, allied with France. Well, yeah. the heck with the allied part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah, somewhat so. But the battle for the the uh, the entrance, the Battle of Baton Rouge, was key to the American Revolution because it converted what could have been an attack route for the British. It turns into a resupply route for the colonials. And the Americans could have never sustained the war that they sustained against the British without cannonballs, gunpowder, and... Uh, vaccinations for yellow fever and that was done through the Mississippi River by the gentleman who uh, Galveston, Texas is named after Bernardo Galvez who was, him and his father were both governors of Cuba and he uh, uh, died fairly young but uh, he basically funded the Battle of Yorktown with 500,000 pounds of gold and silver and the back of the Ocho Reales coin of Spain is the dollar sign that we use today and that's where it came from no. How about that? <laughs> yeah. All right. All right. And, uh, the, yeah, if you look in the back of the Ocho Reales coin, you can just Google it. You'll see the images of the coin. You'll see successive uh, decades of the same coin. You'll see that the old and new world are super synced on top of each other, you know, as a globe. And then on both sides of the globe that are kind Very of like the MasterCard logo. Yeah. Well, on both sides of that logo is the Spanish crown at the top and two columns with silk reefs. So you can see how accountants used to use the dollar sign on the manifest because they wanted to be paid in ocho reales coin from the new world to the old world. So you can see how that that uh, symbol became uh, an evolution. It used to be uh, it used to be a PS. The PS was for pound sterling. Well, guess what? The P and the S end up uh, coming on top of each other when you wanted to be paid in ocho and silver coin. 
and that's how our dollar sign came to be. And what's the Spanish silver dollar? Dollar, which is the origin. So when the Americans uh, finally won their war, the the economy was in disarray. There was just no way to sustain this new colonial currency because it was a specie currency based on land grants, and nobody wanted to fight for it because you couldn't buy shoes later or food or anything for that matter. So they insisted on being paid by the coin. So the the influence of Cuba and Cuba's treasury, who had naturally Cuba had been developed 200 years in advance of the American Revolution, you can see that, that it was the Wall Street. Uh, it was basically Wall Street of the Revolution. So how about them apples from the college dropout? Okay. The point I wanted to make was it just about the, 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 from the earliest... Uh, oh, if I may interrupt, the Bernardo... Got... ...was British, that, that they're, they're a, an attitude of favoring enterprise, favoring business, favoring, you know, the, the kind of... Um, capitalism that allows private entrepreneurs to pursue their own ends without reference to um, centralized government policies uh, took hold. And, you know, it, it was partly uh, benign neglect, as they said. You know, the, uh, uh, the British Empire wasn't organized in a centralized way in the way the Spanish Empire had been, and to some extent the French. Uh, and this, this ended up uh, making all the difference, and of course, when it came time uh, after the French and Indian War, when the, the, the British were saying, hmm, "We need to organize all this a bit more and make the colony, the British colonies, pay for some of the expenditures that we're making on their behalf," uh, that's that's when the tensions that eventuated the American Revolution start to happen. Yeah, so the um, colonials so, uh, had certain rights that they felt were already. God-given yeah, rights. The liberties yeah. of Englishmen. And and the British the came in. Exactly. Right. So it's, you know, what's really, what, you know, what's really interesting of what you're saying, that the British was a decentralized economy and the Spanish was much more centralized. Yes, absolutely. But look at the irony that the Spanish colonies were the ones minting this Ocho Reales coin in Mexico and Peru, not in Spain. How about them? Apples? That's where the gold, well, silver yeah, was. But, but, I mean, overall, though, I think that the... The, the, the point about the, the, uh, the, the fact that the British, they developed uh, their own institutions uh, locally. You know, so you had every colony had its le- legislative body, it had its governor, it had its w- ways of governing itself. And then along comes uh, come the British uh, after 1763 and saying, hey, uh, we, we want to... We, we want to tax you, you know, you, you really should. And, and in some ways they had an argument, you know, they, they wasn't just pulled out of the air. Uh, I'm pretty fair, I think, to the British in, in my account. But it was too late because the Americans were accustomed to governing themselves. That That's the bottom line. They, they were accustomed to self-rule, and so and they valued self-rule. And so they, they're willing to fight for self-rule. Um, and uh, it, it, I don't know whether we're, we're willing to fight for it today, but they were willing to fight for it then. And then well, we'll know when they come after our guns. <laughs> if they ever come after our guns, we'll know how patriotic we are. <laughs> yeah, and that's no joke. Uh, it's really sad because we were having a conversation the other day, us gun-toting friends of ours. We were smoking our cigars and stuff. 
What would you do if they knocked on your door and say, uh... You mean Kamala, President Kamala Harris sent the police? I imagine that, and all of a sudden it could get to that, and will they take them out of your warm hands or cold hands? And that was the, that was the question of both cigar smokers. I'm sure it's a very different question in Oklahoma. Well, I don't think anybody thinks it could happen here. I mean, or, you know, and... and, and... I look. I think a little alarmism is a good thing. We we sort of talked about this before that that it is part of the American tradition that we don't take for granted the benignness of our government because not because of, we're opposed to government in every way, but because we we believe that human nature is is fallen and corrupt and that power corrupts, corrupts. Yeah. and and that 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 that. that Therefore, that's why we have a government with divided powers. And, uh, and this, by the way, is something that, that I go to great pains in the book to explain, and that I think a lot of a lot of Americans, young and old, do not understand. Why do we have this cumbersome system that makes it so hard to pass constitutional amendments, although not so hard that we have to pass some really stupid ones like prohibition, but uh, that, uh, why do we have this kind of structure? Well, there's a reason. Yeah, I readjust. Excuse me, re- readjust your phone because you, you're you're sounding muffled right now. Oh, how's that? There you go. Okay. All right. All right. Well, so you know, Bill, one of the one of the points that uh, we were talking about is the Anglo-American political tradition, and at the University of Oregon, there's a uh, a pioneer with a gun who's being uh, protested by the local students, and it turns out that when the president of the University of Oregon uh, 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 unveiled this uh, pioneer statute a hundred years ago. He gave a speech saying that the Anglo-Saxons had a unique gift of uh, a political uh, culture, which was to protect life, liberty, property, and contracts. And that, but that this gift was something available to everyone, and that everyone, if you came to America and became an American, you could enjoy that. And that's exactly what the assimilation story is, and that's exactly what Mandy and I are doing. We're culturally assimilating because Anglo-American political culture, because of the history of England, going back to the Magna Carta, has created a superior political culture with more respect for the rule of law, with respect for the individual liberty, compared with Latin America, which has a different tradition in Spain and Portugal. And and so we are very happy that you're telling that story. Well, and I I, I, I do, I think I make it clear, although there are some people who are intent on obscuring this, that we're not talking, uh, this is not a racial judgment. Right. This is not saying ang- you know, people of Anglo-Saxon racial heritage are superior. Although it, uh, it, it's also true that people at one time did did argue in those terms. Well. Uh, but that's not what we're saying. When, when you say Anglo-American political culture, you're talking about a culture. You're right. not talking about uh, uh, race. Right. And uh, uh, that's that's an important distinction that people tend not to make. That that uh, well, and Americans uh, also have got to learn. India. One of the reasons India is so successful, relatively speaking, uh, is because uh, England it, it has the benefit of British right. political institutions, right? That, and and, uh, and and traditions and practices that um, that had it not been colonized. <laughs> uh, it would never have had. So, I mean, that's one of the arguments. Same with, same with uh, South Africa. 
Right. South Africa yeah. had a, a strong Anglo influence, and right. they are the leading well, technology it, it, sector it, in Africa. It, it turns out that in 1808, the British tried to invade and capture the port of Buenos Aires, and they were repelled twice. And I tell all my Argentine friends and business associates, you should have let the British take you over, and then you would have the rule of law now, and you you could be speaking English and Spanish. It doesn't matter. And you would have kept your blonde hair and your blue eyes. You would eyes. have kept what, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a matter of ethnicity. It's about uh, institutions and culture. Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and, and I think uh, that's one of the things that we want people to assimilate to. Right. Is the uh, conceptions of, of of the rule of law and and uh, all, you know, all all the sort of traditional institutions ranging from you know trial by jury and the, you know the, 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 the sort of uh, things are uh, innocent uh, before uh, proving guilty right and those are things that are under attack yeah. right now by the progressive yeah. movement in America. Yeah, yeah, uh, Trump, ask, Trump, Judge Trump Kavanaugh. Yeah, yeah, ask Kavanaugh, ask Trump. They were both guilty before proven innocent. Yes, it's pretty sad. It's no, unbelievable. It's just, it, no, it is, and it's unbelievable in in the university setting how. Um, I, I'll, I'll tell you a story. I try to tell it as quickly as I can, but I I had a I teach a class called the Idea of Freedom, and one week we devoted to. You know, John uh, Stuart Mill's book on liberty, and we read it very carefully. And the students were all, oh, we love this, we love this, we, we love free speech and, and all this. And then the, that week, later that week, Charles Murray uh, was at Middlebury College and, you know, was deplatformed, and, and his host was actually physically injured by this sort of Antifa group that shut down his appearance. I don't really remember that. It was his yes. spring of 2017. So it was about a little over two years ago. Right. Um, and I actually was scheduled to appear at Middlebury several weeks later. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know... Uh, the, you gave it a second thought. Uh, well, no, I didn't, because I knew... I'm, nobody knows who I am. And Charles Murray is famous. But uh, I, 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 and I, didn't, I didn't go, and I didn't run into any trouble. It was a very interesting experience because you could see how the a very small number of people have sort of terrorized that place. Okay, but but um, but, but here, here's the interesting thing. I came into class after this, and and uh, I said, "Well, what do you you know? What do you all think about what happened with Murray and, and at Middlebury?" And uh, this is the same class that had the week before been talking about how great Mill was, and, and my favorite student in the class. Um, a young woman said, well, after long pause, nobody wanted to say anything. And then finally she said, well, if he was going to say something that was going to offend people, he shouldn't have been invited. And I was, <laughs> I was shocked. And I said, oh, well, what do the rest of you think about that? And, um, I call that the progressive all, virus. They all kind of fell in line with that. And then I said, well, God, you know, how times have changed. When I went to college... The thing I really relished about it was that you could explore any idea, no matter how outrageous, you know, kind of put it out there and let people bat it around, uh, and uh, you were free to entertain, you know, different ideas about things, and that was what was beautiful about it. And and you could tell they were sort of starting to to meld a little bit because they, they knew that that's what college, you know, that they ideally should be for, and, and uh, or at least part of it. And uh, and then finally, the, the girl redeemed herself by saying, look, 
I I'm the same way. You know, that's then that's what I wanted. But things you got to understand, things are different now. If you say the wrong thing, you will be blackballed. You will be your record will be. You know, uh, in the sports there's nobody backstopping things all the way up the line, all the way up to the president of the of the university, and uh, and everybody else chimed in at that point and said, yeah, yeah, there's this feeling you you really, um, there is no freedom. There is no freedom to speak your mind and explore things uh, in, a, in a rational way. Um, and so they're afraid. And this is the University of Oklahoma. This is not, yeah. uh, you know, uh, Berkeley uh, or some place noted for its uh, left-wing cadres. Um, but it's part. It's a, it's a generational thing, and I think it has something to do with their um, fear that uh, of being labeled, uh, of being of being labeled as, as uh, in some way haters or miscreants of some kind. Well, that that that's and that's too much to bear. You oh, know, it, it would be too well. That's difficult, too wounding for them. That's to, that's to see themselves in that way. That's the burden of freedom. That's what democracy sounds like. Yeah, Yeah. that's the burden of freedom that you have to bear if you want to be free. Listen, a a couple of weeks ago, we had a Polish professor, Richard Legutko from Krakow. He had been yeah he had been scheduled he had been scheduled to speak at Middlebury, and the day before, the president canceled him because he has written the book called "The Demons in Democracy" about how he grew up during the Pol- the communist occupation in Poland, and he sees a lot of similarities between contemporary liberal democracy and communism, especially silencing your opponents. And yeah, so I've, I've read that book, and I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I admire that guy tremendously. And you know, uh, he probably told you that one of the professors invited him onto campus anyway to speak to his class. Okay, and no. The, and the, they had a very uh, uh, good discussion with students, actually challenging him about some of his ideas. But uh, um, it, 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 you know, there is, you know, places like Middlebury. I mean, it. it it's very disturbing the things you read about, but you actually go there and you see that it's not hopeless. It's not a hopeless situation, but but you know some some academic leaders in this country have got to grow. Uh, well, <laughs> they got to grow a spine to begin with, and maybe maybe. Well, here in the concrete conservative, we call that balls. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, call on it. Cojones, right. there you go. Wait a second. There you go. You do, that's the that's the, the Spanish the, word. That's, yeah. the, we got when this happens on our show. There's always a breaking moment for this. Okay, that's our standing ovation. But, but you know the oh, the the case of. Like when, you remember the uh, you you probably don't know that uh, Groucho Marx used to have a TV show, and uh, when when the guests would say the secret word. And this little bird would come down, and uh, they would win a prize or something. With the, yeah. Well, you just won the bird. The, yeah, but you know, yeah, I won the bird, yeah. but maybe the the case in Oberlin College, where they're now hit with a twenty five million dollar judgment, uh, yeah. might might wake some people up. Yes. Well, I think that, that, that to what I know of the case, uh, richly deserved. And, right. And the sad thing is that, by all accounts, the 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 administration in Oberlin is completely unrepentant. Right. They don't really see that they did anything wrong. Their their uh, their messaging to the alumni and so on is that well, you know, uh, it, we we think this is wrong and we're going to appeal it. 
I don't know whether I don't know whether they actually will because that's just going to be more expense. But um, uh, it's a very very significant black eye for them. And um, as somebody who works in higher education, and I value it, you know, it made all the difference to me, even though I didn't go to the University of Chicago. But uh, it made. All Did the you have to do that again? I, opening up my. Look at it. Look at you know that you should see. If you were in here, you would see what I'm talking about. But I, it's really, uh, it's really in a deep decline, and uh, you know, I, and I don't know what. I'm afraid at times the only thing that's going to turn things around is a, a massive economic uh, shock to higher education. That is, put, uh, well, enrollments dropping. That is coming. That that is coming, man. You can make a lot of money on social media today. Yeah. You have, uh, I have a show on Tuesday with uh, a social media uh, guru, and she invites people, and everybody's making more money than I am, and these people are 20 years younger than me. They've got anywhere from 30,000 followers to over 2, 3 million followers, and they're making half yeah. a million dollars. And, uh, um, yeah, um, most of them did go to college, but... They're not making a living on anything that they learned there. They're doing it on social yeah. media, yeah. on clicks and and what they call funnels, how to get people yeah. to like you, follow you, subscribe to you, and the quantum effect of that mass, yeah. and, and then companies yeah. asking you to sell their stuff. Well, higher education definitely is not paying off as, as it did. And well, liberal burning. arts sabotaged. Between the United States government funding education yep. with grants and, uh, and, and loans. loans and ripoffs, that drove the uh, tuition through the roof because it was a false sense of security on behalf of the school. They just kept on uh, building. I mean, my God, the state university system in the United States is an enormous enterprise. I mean, these campuses— Well, he's at University are, of Oklahoma. Yeah, that campus must be enormous as well. I went to University yeah. of Maryland. I couldn't believe the size of it. They used the entire Civil War armory on that property and converted it into classrooms. It's uh, It really is a phenomenal thing, God, because our nation— resuscitates itself after failing in high school they resuscitate themselves at the university level to continue to, to continue on it's really odd how the university system can run more efficiently and yet they they get really underachieving kids that they have to accept in the college or else nobody gets accepted and they somehow are I'll turn a a, a, a numb nut high school graduate into a college graduate somewhere or another uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> You can you can record that and send that to your kids and let them know who said right, it. Right, right, right. <laughs> I mean, I think look, um, there's a lot I love about it, and I and I and I, I don't want to see it go down the tubes. But I think, on the other hand, I, I really don't want to see uh, my country go down the tubes. Well, you got to get rid of the liberal arts degrees. I mean, all those yeah. related degrees that do absolutely nothing for someone. What about history degrees? Uh, no, history has a certain value if you can oh, okay. if you can tie it to. The great industrialists, you yeah. know. I mean, if you're going to tie it to how people made their wealth, like last night when we watched Mark Levin, and he had the story of the, uh, the gentleman who founded Lucas Oil, who, you know, grew up in the Depression, never went to college, uh, had a truck, two trucks, three trucks. When he got to five trucks, he was finding out a way to get his trucks to go more miles to the gallon. And he discovered uh, an additive for his oil that ended up being applicable to transmission and the truck's motor. And boom, right. he founded a line of oils, and today, multimillionaire and uh, Lucas Oil. It's those stories that inspire kids, not stories of it, Benjamin it, Franklin it, and it, Alexander it, Hamilton. It, 
it, it is so, uh, uh, um, I don't know what the word is, it's dismaying to see um, bright young people who don't have that sense of possibility that, that you know, you could invent something. It's, uh, you, you could encounter a problem and, uh, and, and find a, a fresh way of living it, you know, and that, that kind of ingenuity that we associate with people like, you know, like Henry Ford and uh, uh, Edison, the great inventors, uh, you know, and, and I give a lot of attention to that aspect of American history. We've been such a seedbed of invention and, and, um, and, and a magnet for all the talent of the world to, to come here and come into an environment in which they can really test their abilities and, and uh, go as far as, I mean, you know, Andrew Carnegie was an immigrant, you know. Yep. <laughs> it, it was a uh, uh, it was not a not uncharacteristic. So, um, you know, they they. I think one of the ways we educate is uh, um, that we because we judge so much on the basis of how much people how well people do on standardized tests. Uh, and this is true for professional schools as well. And, then, and these only measure. I'm sorry to say, uh, how well you do on standardized tests. You don't really measure anything else. Um, so I often like to, to sort of stun my students with the example of, uh, I think, which American president of the 20th century do you think was the one who cared the most about history, who read history, who thought about history? Um, and they'll, they'll say Kennedy and no. Uh, <laughs> I, I, in this show, we I, never talk about Kennedy, okay? Yeah, no, okay. Well, and, uh, and this, this is, I, I hope you don't mind, this is going to be a Democrat, but it was Truman. Truman, yeah. He, he didn't have a college education. He was the last Republican Democrat. That's right. <laughs> he went home in his station wagon after yeah, his term of office. He was a conservative Repo- Democrat. That's yeah. right. That's right. He, 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 uh, and he, he, graduated from high school and went off to work for the Santa Fe Railroad. Yep. And he, he never got a college education. He took a couple of business courses and decided they were useless. Uh, so you think if I if I drink water at the University of Chicago at the water fountain, you think I can run for president? Because that's the only thing missing. No. <laughs> well, now you remember when, uh, oh, what's his name? Scott Walker, the governor. Yes, I right. met, met him. He never got his degree. Yeah, he never finished yeah. his degree. And that was, that was actually, for a period of time, that was treated as a serious liability. And I thought, my gosh, that to me that's great. Yep. And I, I, I hope that doesn't make me a traitor to my profession. But no. I think too many people go to college. I think college has been uh, really damaged by being seen as a necessary kind of gateway to any kind of white-collar career and for that matter a lot of blue collar careers uh, and, and pink well, collar you know, well, part, but part of the you don't need the, you don't need a college education no no but part of the problem part of the problem is that employers are not allowed to give uh, aptitude tests that's right that's right that's the, the uh, Griggs right. the Supreme Court you know this is something that nobody talks about but you're absolutely right well expand, expand on that point because uh, Ed didn't tell me that that was my problem. No, no, no. What what it is, what the Supreme Court said is that if if a, a, an employer's aptitude test or intelligence test has a disparate impact, then it's discriminatory and you can't use it. So instead, the employers have stopped giving their own tests in in great part, and they rely on the colleges and so they say you yeah. know. 
Yeah. Just say. The giant uh, um, subsidy. The right. decision and, and related decisions. A giant subsidy for higher education as a sort of filtering mechanism. Right. And if somebody can get through four years of college, and they they're more likely to be a reliable employee. Well, that that is no longer true. If it ever was. Right. Um, that that reasoning is no longer true. And and uh, the whole disparate impact thing. Well, that that that's another story. But I don't think that was. Uh, 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 yeah, the la- you know the saddest story is always the the, the unachievable man with potential, and that's just it's just a harsh reality. Yeah. I mean, uh, I have a personal story with my father who came to America, you know, didn't finish the seventh grade, and he left me a fortune for my brothers and I to to build our 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 success around. And my dad just tore out the back of a forty eight Mercury, knocked out the window. Uh, if you remember all the Mercury's back in the late 40s, that had huge trunks. So you can imagine this became a pickup truck. And uh, he basically uh, sold uh, fruits and vegetables because if he failed at fruits and vegetables, he said he could always eat. So <laughs> and that's how it started. And then he sold it. He sold it in uh, at the age of 50 for four million dollars back in the uh, this would be like 1988 or so. So right. four million dollars is quite a money. But quite frankly, only, and he used to say it all the time, paid in full, only in America. And my dad thought that he served in the Reagan administration. He was able to found a city that shares shores with Havana, which is a city that this station is built on. Key Biscayne, right. And I, I, and I got tremendous, uh, you know, kudos for giving the city a voice now on this radio station, simply because I lost my freedom of speech in 2013. That's what motivated me to build the station. So I don't think I would have ever done it if it wasn't for my admiration for my father. And it's just this country just That's beautiful. That's 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 a beautiful story. Yeah, it was yeah. cool. He founds a city and then I give it a voice and then I invite some guy from the University of Chicago and screw it all up. <laughs> ah! No, he you doesn't know. mean you, he means me. <laughs> well, it could have been worse. You could have invited somebody from Yale Law School. Really? Yeah, yeah you, I, I, you're the famous bunker, bumper sticker. I graduated from Yale and survived it. Oh my God! Well, th- yeah. this is uh, this is really the the end of our story here with you today. So we'll give you the closing arguments. We've got uh, you've got two more minutes and uh, close the deal. But uh, um, thank you very much for calling in, Professor. Well, I, what I want to do is, I mean, and my publisher would be angry with me if I don't. Is to, to, to re- remind people the name of the book is Land of Hope. Uh, and it's an invitation to the great American story is the subtitle. It's published by Encounter Books. It's, uh, it's a beautiful book, by the way. I mean, I, I, if I do say so myself, and it, they, they did a beautiful job. In fact, people say, you know, you say this is sort of like a textbook, sort of like a trade book, and they say, actually, it's a coffee table book. And in some ways, it really is. Uh, uh, it, it's 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 got the kind of heft and beauty, beautiful design, beautiful cover. Um, you can look. And we at have a coffee table in the book. We have a coffee table here in the studio, so that's where it's going to go. No, I mean, we have a copy right, of the book. All right. Well, but read it. It's very, and, and I've tried to make it very readable. That is one thing. All, everybody who has commented on the book has said that it is a very enjoyable read, not just uh, a comprehensible read, but an enjoyable read. I have lots of stories lots of humanizing of 
things that are often presented in a very abstract way. I try to present them in a very human way. And uh, it, it's uh, it'd be a great gift. Uh, it's it's uh, sell, It sells for um, $34.99, but you can get it on Amazon for like $24. Yep, that's and, what I uh, did. Uh, something like that. And so... Uh, you uh, sure you didn't give Ed a coupon? Amazon, he, but, you know, Ed uh, got a coupon. He's not saying it. Did you get a coupon? How you got it cheaper? It was twenty five bucks on Amazon. They shipped it in two days. Yeah, yeah. Amazon the, the the book killer. Yep. It's amazing though. Amazon's for another day. We, we, we did. We it sold out. I think I said at the beginning it sold out on the first day on Amazon. And then for about two and a half weeks. Uh, when people would go to order it, uh, they would say that um, we, the book will be shipped in one to two months. And people were saying, well, what on earth? And so I said, well, I, I, I started in the Barnes & Noble. By the way, it's in every, it's, it, I think for the rest of this week and next, uh, it's in every Barnes & Noble store in the country. They have a, in the new, new releases table. And I'll tell you, I was just in New York, and I went to the Union Square Barnes and Noble. Sure. Not exactly a hotbed of conservatism. Right. And there it was. I actually have a picture of it sitting Great. there in the new releases, right in the center of it. So, so it's 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 getting a good run, and I'm very I'm very happy with Encounter. I think they've done a great job. All right. Well, so, let me, well, we're very wait, happy wait, wait. you you called. But, but let me give you let me give you a bookstore. Where is hope? Yeah. Let me give you, you got to come down to Coral Gables. There's a Books and Books, which is one of the biggest independent booksellers, and they often host uh, authors. And I think we could use a conservative author down here to well, tell. I, you know, my, my, my son is down there at, at the university. Oh, he can tell uh, you. Yeah. He's a tough guy. I could hire him as my bodyguard. Absolutely. No, but you should definitely yeah. come down here. And uh, Books and Books in Coral Gables, you should tell Endeavor they have to get you in there. Encounter well, rather. Okay, uh, I'll, I'll get down there somehow. All right, great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really am privileged. You bet. Thank, Thank you. you. All right. Bye bye. Stay tuned for statues and stories in just about a moment. Let's go with you two. Let's have some pride from 1984. This is Mac on the Rock with Ed Vidal for the Concrete Conservatives. If you like our programming on WSQF 94.5 in Key Biscayne, you can also hear us very far away nationwide, WSQFradio.com. And if you like our audio files and our subject matter, subscribe to YouTube Mac on the Rock Rampage. Take care and stay free.